Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30 and 36 through 43. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore again, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Gigi. So good morning. Uh, My name is Drew Bennett, one of the pastors here at Redeemer City, if I've not met you. Uh, We're glad uh, to have you here with us this morning. Uh, Thank you for being here on the Lord's Day to worship with us. We are in a series this fall uh, called The Parables of the Kingdom, or or if you want a subtitle, The Kingdom of Heaven is Like, because Jesus told a number of different stories about this biblical reality, the kingdom of heaven, uh, and and we're going to take those in Matthew's gospel one by one as we go throughout the weeks. And uh, this morning we come to this parable that has been historically called the parable of the weeds. Now here's my question. Do you ever get discouraged about what's going on in the world? Okay, that's the right answer. Be honest. Do you ever, if you're a person of faith, do you ever read the Bible, you know, and it says one thing, and then you watch the news, and it feels like it's the exact opposite, and it really starts to make you wonder if Jesus makes any difference. I mean, that really can be the reality that we're faced with a lot of the times. If you look at verse 27, uh, the, the men come to the, to the master, and they say, did you not sow good seed in the field? What's, what's with all of these weeds? And it's a statement of unbelief and and of discouragement and despair, and we can find ourselves there so easily because life is so fraught with difficulty and sadness and and pain and grief. And so it makes us wonder about this reality of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus talks about so much. But when the Bible talks about it, the kingdom of heaven, it's referring to the inbreaking of God's love and power into the world in Jesus Christ. Kingdom is political language. The gospel is political news. 
because the gospel is the gospel of the kingdom. It's the promise of a new world where righteousness and justice and peace are the rule and not the exception. But here's the thing. The Jews of Jesus' day were looking for the Messiah, for the king, who would usher in this new age, as the prophets foretold, and they believed that his kingdom would explode upon the world in some cataclysmic sense, and things would never be the same again. And then Jesus came in the Gospels using the very language of the prophets, but it didn't happen like they expected. He didn't overthrow the Romans. Things mostly went on the way they were before, and Jesus, of course, was executed as a criminal of the state, And so we meet the disciples on the road to Emmaus on the day of the resurrection in Luke 24. And they say this, they say, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. But obviously we were wrong. Because look at the way things are. And I wonder if you, like me, ever feel that way too. And if so, it might be because you have the wrong expectations for the kingdom. And that's what this parable is about. See, there's a phrase in the Bible and in biblical, not in the Bible, excuse me, in biblical studies uh, that's important here. We call it the already and the not yet. And here's what it means. It means the kingdom, as it's talked about in the Bible, is already here. Jesus said the kingdom has come. That's what that's what his gospel was. But even though it's it's here already, it's not all the way here yet. It's not yet all the way here. And, and they say uh, that World War II was won the moment our boys stepped on uh, the beaches of Normandy. But of course, there were still months of fighting to be done before the Nazis surrendered. Well, you could say that Jesus' first coming was our D-Day. His second coming will be our V-Day. And we are living in the in-between. And to do that well, because it's hard... To do that well, you have to have the right set of expectations because if your expectations are too low, you won't live with the boldness and the faith and the courage that you're meant to have. And if they're too high, then you won't have the patience and you'll become far too easily cynical and discouraged because the work is really, really hard. And so this parable of the weeds is Jesus' attempt to teach us the right set of expectations about what the world will be like in between his first and his second coming. And so the parable teaches us hope. That's our theme for this morning. Now, I'll explain as we go, but I said last week, these parables teach us not only what we should believe, but what we should be becoming if we do believe. Gospel doctrine leads to the gospel culture as it's revealed in the people who are believing the gospel doctrine. So Christians stand in stark contrast to the rest of the world in many ways. We should stand in stark contrast to our world as a hopeful people. We should be a hopeful people. No matter what's happening, no matter what sadness we face, we should be a people of hope. And that's what this text is really about. And so I want to talk about that this morning. If you see the three points of the outline that you have, we're going to look and we're going to see the need for hope because the world is wheat and weeds. But secondly, the opposite of hope because it really, I think, helps us see how we can go wrong in this. And then lastly, the reason we can have hope, which is that there is a consummation coming. There's an end and the end will be the happily ever after that we so desperately need. And so let's walk through this together. If you would start with me just first thinking through the need for hope. And we see the parable is really constructed to teach us that the world is both wheat and weeds. Jesus is the sower who is scattering good seed throughout the world. So this parable echoes the parable of the sower. The two really go hand in hand here at the beginning of all of this teaching about parables. There's a few minor differences. 
the field in the sower was the human heart, and we talked about that last week, the different soils uh, that can really dictate the way we hear the gospel. But here, look at verse 38. The field is very clearly the world, not, not the person, not the individual, not the church. It's the world. And the seed in the sower was the word of, of the kingdom, the gospel. But here, notice... The seed here, verse 38, also is it's you and it's me. It's the sons of the kingdom. So there's, there's a subtle difference, and I would say it to you this way. As God plants the gospel in you, which is what the sower is about, what's the parable of the sower. As God plants the gospel in you and it begins to grow and bear fruit in you, he then plants you in the world. So a couple of things here before we even really get to the meat of what we have to say this morning. And the first just a little point of application that I would make for you is uh, you don't have to wonder whether you're where God wants you to be. Wherever you are, that's where he wants you. Isn't that good news? You've been planted. That's what the text says. So you don't have to go looking for God's will. You're right in the middle of it, wherever you are, right where you are, because you've been planted. So if you, so the second thing I would say is if, so if, you, wanna do, if, you, if you want to do any good where you are, you've got to put down roots. Make commitments to the people and the places where you are. Stay put. Plant yourself. The kingdom is about depth, not breadth. And depth comes from staying put in the same place for a long time. And then third, I think, if you live intentionally because you've been planted, and if you live in the same place over the long haul, if you live intentionally there over the long haul, then there's a reasonable expectation of success. That's what the king, that's what the, I think that's the point of what Jesus is saying. Verse 24, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. In other words, God is faithfully, slowly cultivating his purposes in the world, and the kingdom is already here, and it's advancing in small ways through quiet acts of commitment and kindness. So even when it doesn't look like it, even when the sadness really bears down upon you or the failures seem to come, seed is being sown, and there's a harvest. Remember that. Just can we breathe for a minute? Just take a deep breath in that? Doesn't that, didn't that feel great? To know that? Because a lot of time it doesn't look like it, does it? Instead, it feels like things are off their axis a little bit or that we're going backwards. And that is because verse 25 says that along with the sower who sows, there's an enemy. And he is also sowing. Verse 25, wheat, weeds among the wheat. Now, this enemy showed up in the parable last week as well. And he is the one who's come to steal the seed before it can plant itself into the heart of the hearer, Matthew 13, 19. And we didn't really deal with him that much then, but we will for just a minute now. And, and, and what we're told here is that the work of Jesus in the world is, is opposed by powerful spiritual forces. Listen, the gospel is not thwarted. Amen? Can we, can we agree upon that? The gospel is not being thwarted in the world. No dictator, no political regime can, can thwart the work God intends to accomplish in the world. The gospel is not being thwarted, but it is being opposed. And that's actually the, the, the message of the parable. It is opposed by spiritual forces of evil led by the one identified here as God's enemy, the devil, in verse 39. And so as a result, the world that we experience is both wheat and weeds growing up together, growing up together there. Do you see that's such a helpful picture? In other words, there will be advances, but there will also be retreats. There will be good days and there will be bad days. And to be honest, for many of us, a lot of the time, more bad days than good days. 
But this imagery here is very heavily borrowed from the Old Testament book of Daniel. That's something I learned this week that was just really fun for me. Uh, and I, 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 you wouldn't know it, but, but once you stop to think about it, you the fiery furnace is there. And there's all this language, and all the commentators say uh, that, that this book really, Jesus is thinking about the Old Testament book of Daniel as he tells this story. And of course, Daniel, if you're familiar with that story in the Old Testament, is all about living faithfully in a time of great political and spiritual opposition. So what does it mean to be courageous with your faith when you're surrounded by people who want to kill you for your faith? That sort of thing. But Daniel's about the kingdom too, if you're familiar at all. There are fiery furnaces and lion's dens and all of these scary things there. And yet the overriding message of that Old Testament book is that in spite of all of that, the kingdom marches on. So the kingdom is here, but it's not all the way here yet. And so along with wheat, there will be weeds. That's what Jesus says. And perhaps the most surprising part of the story is in verses 29 and 30 when the servants come to the master and they say, well, there are weeds out there now. Do you want us to go and pull up the weeds? Sounds like a reasonable assumption to me. And yet the master says, no. Well, let's read it. Here's what he says. No. Lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. Now that may seem disappointing news at first. But there's some wisdom to it, as we'll see. But does it mean that we give up and just let the weeds grow? I go through seasons of that with my yard. Anybody else? I'm just like, I'm exhausted. I don't care. Who cares? I mean, should Hartford Winter Haven close the doors and, and stop trying to help the homeless and the underemployed in our city? Should we, should we stop planting churches and just say, you know what, it's too hard out there? No, no, but we have to do that work with the right expectations. That's the point, okay? Real talk for just a minute, okay? And here's the thing. As soon as, <laughs> as, soon as we solve one problem, we often create another because we're part of the problem that only Jesus can fix. And so often in trying to do good, if we're not careful, we can undo the good that God is doing that we can't see, especially when we try to step into the role of Savior. And the parable's warning us against that. It's not saying don't do anything. It's just saying as you do it, keep the right perspective and know that really the ultimate hope is not whatever strategies you can figure out and try to employ in the world, the ultimate hope, the option we're really left with is hope. See, the kingdom is here, but it is not all the way here yet, which means something more is coming, and that something more, the future of the kingdom, is the solution that we're ultimately after, not new legislation or education. Here's, we don't push the kingdom out into the world. We're being pulled along with the world into the future that God promises us. And hope means having the right vision of the future. But until then, until then, Jesus says, it doesn't matter how hard you try to get rid of all the weeds, they remain. He says, it's my job, it's my job to get rid of them, not yours. And so we need hope. Secondly, we see them, but we also learn what the opposite of hope, where we often find ourselves instead of in this posture of hope. Hope is what uh, the moral philosophers call a theological virtue. That is that it's uniquely Christian. It's supernatural. 
Uh, it's something that, that you have to have faith in order to truly have. And so much of the anxiety we're experiencing as a nation is because people have lost hope. And it makes sense. When you reject the idea of absolute existence, as most secular people do, what happens to life is it loses its narrative structure. So there's no longer any meta narrative uh, that people buy into, no overarching story that explains life, no happily ever after, and so no hope. And this is where Christians can be the light of the world by being different, because no matter how bad things get, we are people who know because of the story we're told, because of the story we belong to, that no matter how dark it gets, we still can have hope. There's light that's dawning and coming. And so in 1 Thessalonians 4, for example, the Apostle Paul tells those believers there that they should grieve, but not as those who have no hope. I mean, in other words, grieve because life is full of sad things. I mean, Christianity isn't feral on repeat in the, as the background noise of your life. Ask your teenagers, they'll tell you what that means if you don't. Because I'm happy, right? It's not that, like, just playing in the background the whole time. That's just, that's just not our experience. I mean, Christians genuinely and compassionately enter into the grief of the world because God has entered into the grief of the world, but always with hope, and the hope is the part that makes us different. And the truth is, <laughs> we lose hope too. I mean, hope is like this narrow road along a ridge line with sheer cliffs on either side. And you can fall to your death by, by going either way. And the first cliff, I think, if we want to just imaginatively enter into this story for a minute, the first cliff that we have to avoid is what, I'm, is what I want to refer to as the wheat-only optimism that the text warns about. So the world, the world is wheat and weeds, Jesus teaches, okay? But we forget this and we begin to assume and expect only wheat, and the wheat is the already of the kingdom. We can become so focused on that already that we forget that the not yet and suffer from unrealistic expectations about the kind of success and change we will see in the world. And this is the opposite of hope. Hope is about the ultimate future that God is going to bring. This is about the immediate future, what human ingenuity and will and strategy can accomplish. And so the world is wheat and weeds. So wheat-only optimism is out of touch with reality. That's what Jesus is saying if you've been recently, there's a mural at Grove Roots downtown that says, optimism will save the world. Doesn't that sound so nice? It's a stinking pile of garbage. It's the ultimate group thinking, group positive thinking dogma. But it's absolutely reality denying. And it's unwise and it's dangerous for a couple of reasons. For one... Uh, it's naive, and evil is not naive. Evil is cunning. And if, you are, if you're naive about evil, and if you're platitudinous in your approach to such things, you're toast. It's over. Evil, evil wins. Evil's going to get you if you're naive about it. And so this naive optimism makes you lax is what happens. It says that the enemy sowed his seed, verse 25, while they were sleeping. In other words, they let their guard down. Because, you know, all we need to do is just think positive thoughts, and magically things are just going to turn out better than they are today, tomorrow, somehow. They weren't paying attention. They weren't on guard. They weren't in a warfare mentality. And that's why it's pretty dangerous and unwise to live this way as well. But there's a couple of other things. For one, for another, it's reductionistic. What happens in this kind of wheat-only optimism mentality is that it reduces complex problems to simple solutions, which is 
the problem with our political process too. But ultimately, it sets you up to fail because you'll be so easily discouraged. Discouragement is the result of wrong expectations. If you expect it to be hard and it's hard, you won't be discouraged, right? When it gets hard, does that make sense? If you expect it to be hard and it turns out to be what you expected, then you won't be discouraged or at least not discouraged easily. But if you expect it to be easy and it's hard, and Jesus says, it's going to be hard. Well, that's when you give up. So in the Bible, the fool is the person who's out of touch with reality. And wheat only optimism is out of touch with reality. The world is wheat and weeds, and it's unwise to expect too much. So when the wheat only optimism person loses hope, it tends to look like cultural embrace, cultural engagement that's really cultural assimilation or, or enculturation. And this is not the way we're meant to live in the world. Christians who believe that D-Day is in the past and V-Day is around the corner but is coming should come up with different solutions to problems than people who think that life is meaningless and random and going nowhere. That's the first clip. But there's a second one. So I'm hoping to hit every single person. Nobody's off the hook this morning, okay? You might say those silly people, but that just means you're in this camp I'm about to talk about right now. And that is, uh, the second clip is the weeds only cynicism. The world is weeds, but also wheat. And you can look and only see weeds. Now, this is me, okay? This is where I, this is where I tend to land in this, if you can't tell. Uh, and it's really the same problem as wheat-only optimism. The weeds are uh, the not yet of the kingdom. And we can become so focused on the weeds that we forget that the kingdom is already here and suffer from kingdom expectations that are too low. So you can expect too much of the kingdom. You can expect too little. But weeds-only cynicism expects too little. And this is the opposite of hope, too. Again... Hope looks to the ultimate future, the future that Jesus says is coming at the end. Cynicism is focused on the past. And what happens is from the past emerges a pattern, an expectation almost, of the way things work. And, and that's just the way it is. There's so much heartache. There's so much pain. There's so much experience of loss back here that I come to expect it here. But the funny thing is, is if you're cynical, it's usually because you were, you were once not hopeful, you were once naive and you got burned in the past. So cynicism is the present colored by the past. We're all, we were all once naive as children. Uh, and then we grow up and we put that silly stuff behind us, don't we? But the opposite of being naive is not to become cynical as most adults do. The opposite of naive is to be hopeful. But it's safer to live the way I'm describing, isn't it? It's dangerous to hope. <laughs> but the truth is, it's far more dangerous to be cynical. You can live with a broken heart or with an unbreakable heart. That's the point of with C.S. Lewis's famous quote. Uh, those are the only two options in a world that's both wheat and weeds growing up together. Hope means that against all odds, you keep showing up to possibly have your heart broken. And it's hard. But the cynicism I'm describing, see, the problem with it is, is it's reality denying too. Because the kingdom has come, the love and the power of God are on the move. Aslan's on the move. Hello? Aslan's on the move in the world. He's making all things new. I mean, did you know the way John, notice the way John talked about this as we read this past week in 1 John? He says, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. 
It's morning. The light has come over the horizon. It's just not fully in the sky yet, but you can see the way it's piercing through the darkness. Some, something has come into the world that makes a difference. The world's not the same as it was. It's headed somewhere now. We're not destined to just repeat the same old mistakes or to live out the same old disappointments and, and, and sadnesses. Life is not static. It's dynamic. Change is possible. Cynicism is reality denying because the kingdom has come. And it's also unwise and dangerous for one main reason. Commentators say that the weed, weeds here is probably Dommel, uh, which would have made a lot of sense to these people this was written to originally because it looks like wheat until the very end when it's ready for harvest. So until then, you can't really tell the two apart, the weed and the weeds, which is surely part of the reason why the master said, let them both grow together until the harvest because the problem with cynicism is, is that it's so certain about what's wheat and what's weeds. But the problem is it's not so easy. There's a lot that looks like weeds that might actually be wheat in the end. And vice versa. But for the cynic, everything look like, looks like weeds. Everything. And it's sad, really, because you miss a lot of good stuff. The world is weeds but also wheat and so wheat only cynicism is out of touch with reality and so it's unwise to expect too little of the kingdom when this weed only cynicism person loses hope it tends to look the opposite of what i described before this time it's cultural antagonism a culture war mentality which is really cultural withdrawal and that's not the way we're to live in the world either for god so loved the world the bible says and if god loves the world guess what we should too so lastly then, if we have to avoid these sheer cliffs of wheat-only optimism and weeds-only cynicism and, and walk the tightrope of hope in the world, how do we do that? What's the reason we can have hope? And here we just come to the end, and the story, excuse me, the surprise of the story is, as I've said, that the master refuses to allow his workers to separate the wheat from the weeds and that is because the roots have become intertwined so that in pulling out the weeds, damage would have been done to the wheat as well. And that's the problem with the way we go about trying to manage our lives a lot of times is in making sure none of the bad stuff happens, we undo the good stuff that God intends to do as well. It's very challenging to me. But it's also because he promises there would be a time when the separation would happen. But at the end the harvest you see that when the wheat is ready and the weeds can be gathered and thrown away without any damage being done to men what what i call the consummation okay weed only optimism considers the present in light of the possibilities of the immediate future birthed by human ingenuity and planning weeds only cynicism considers the present in light of the pain of the past but wheat and weeds realistic Hope considers the present in light of this ultimate future, what Jesus calls the close of the age, verse 40. And look at these words. When the Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, throughout the Bible, the image of the harvest is used to describe the final judgment, and that's what Jesus is doing here too. Christians believe that the world will end in the courtroom of God. And yeah, that's scary, but, and I know how problematic that doctrine is today. Here's, here's the funny thing. Think about this for just a minute with me. Our, our culture is angry with God for not destroying evil. 
So many people say that's why they don't believe. There are too many bad things that happen in the world to believe in a God who is good. So we, we are angry with God for not destroying evil. But when this doctrine comes in, those same people get angry about the idea that God would destroy evil in judgment. You see the inconsistency there? I mean, which is it? What do we want? And what, what I think it shows is that, that we even have this logical fallacy in the way we think about this thing because we are, as we're told here, verse 41, we are lawbreakers. As it said, says in the text, the odyssey, the doctrine of, you know, how can a good God allow evil and judgment? How can God come to punish evil? They, they aren't the problem we have with God. We don't want him to exist because if he does, it means that he is God and we are not. He gets to set the agenda for us. We don't get to set the agenda for him. And so the root of all evil in the world is human pride and selfishness. And that sin, we're told here, has no place in the kingdom. Listen, that is the Christian hope, isn't it? That even though it may not be true today, there is coming a day when God will root out all evil and it will have no place in our experience of life with him. Jesus wins. He will vanquish evil. And there will be justice. And there will be no more mourning or pain or crying or tears or oppression or any of that stuff because the kingdom will be all the way here. And if you're a Christian, that's good news, isn't it? But not just for then, for today as well. It's why you can forgive and not take vengeance. It's how you go through suffering and not fall apart. All that's rooted in hope. you got to have hope. It's because there's a better future that you can do that stuff. The Christian life is only lived if you believe there's something around the corner that makes sense of everything hard that you have to go through now. If you're not a Christian, then this is something, this thing I'm talking about here, this final judgment, is something that should land hard on you, to be quite honest, because here's what it means. Every single person in the room this morning is facing one of two fates. Now listen carefully, please. One of two fates. Either sin gets rooted out of you, or you get rooted out of the kingdom. This is hard, okay? You can be rooted out of the kingdom at the final judgment, like the wheat that is gathered and burned, Jesus says here, or God can come and he can begin to root the evil out of you ahead of time. If you meet God in judgment without having believed, you are the weeds that are gathered and burned. Your experience of the next life will be what it says here in verse 42, weeping and gnashing of teeth. That, that describes consuming, utter despair and anguish. But here's the good news that I've been sent by God to herald to all of us this morning. There's another option. Turn to Jesus right now in faith and let him root the evil out of you. And here's how that happens. In the Bible, weeds are associated with the curse of Genesis 3. So the Christian gospel is that God in Christ has taken the curse upon himself. This is what the cross is all about. The cross is the judgment day of God ahead of time. Jesus became the weeds, Galatians 3 says, on the cross, and he was burned up by the wrath of God. He experienced the consuming despair and agony of alienation from God, and he did it in love for you. Jesus died for you, and if you see him dying in love for you, the very sight of him will root out all the pride and selfishness in your heart. And you will become, verse 43, the righteous, who, look there, who shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Man, isn't that awesome? Those aren't the good people. 
They're the saved people. See, a Christian is a person who, in turning to Jesus in faith, has had the evil rooted out of them. And therefore, they have no reason to be afraid of judgment day. We read this in community Bible reading this past week, and it gets me every time. 1 John 3, 2. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. On judgment day. We will see Jesus for who he really is for the first time, for the very first time. And just seeing him will root out whatever sin remains in us on the spot. It will instantaneously instantaneously fall off us. And we will be the righteous who inherit the kingdom. But here's the thing that can begin to happen today, too, with just one look. On that day, we will see him as he really is. But if you see him this morning... Even if your view is obscured or incomplete, if you see him this morning, he is, is of such beauty and brilliance that just seeing him will change you. It will begin to root out all the pride and the selfishness in you so that when that day comes, you will stand among the righteous. If you believe, if you look to him. Friends, are you discouraged the way the world is going? Does it feel like there's just more sadness in your life than there is the promise of the kingdom? Does it feel like evil is winning? Don't forget. It's because we're in the middle of a story. But this parable teaches us what the Bible teaches us. that The happily ever after is on the way. Jesus is coming again. Amen? Amen? (laughs) And that's our hope. Let's pray. Would you pray with me, Father? Just in these last minutes, as we sing, uh, for some of us, I pray that you put a song of salvation in our li- on our lips. Uh, that there's a very real threat that we have to make sense of, that I feel even in my own heart as I read this story, that um, it is good of you to promise that you will root out from the kingdom every, every evil, wicked thing. And if that's me... Uh, then, then, that is, then that is a good thing for the future of your kingdom. But we thank you for the, the promise that is, is that it doesn't have to be me. That instead of me being rooted out of the kingdom, you can begin even now in this moment, in this, on this day, to root out all of that wicked, evil, law-breaking stuff in me so that by the time I get to the judgment seat, I could be described as you describe your people here as those that the righteous who shine like the sun. I, I admit that I, I just, I want that because that is, that is not true of me. And I imagine most of us in this room feel the heaviness and the weight of our sins. So remind us of the good news of the gospel, that you love us in spite of ourselves, that at our very worst, you've loved us best in Jesus, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that, that's the love. That's the love that can change us. It's the love that when we see it, can cause the selfishness and the pride to just fall off us so that we might be people, even in the, before the judgment, right now as we go throughout this world, that we might be people who live for you, who love you and who serve you and who shine like stars in the night sky, the light of the world for all to see. Would that be true of us, we pray. And so come. Increase our faith in these last moments as we sing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Those are our powerful, courageous, subversive words to sing, but I hope uh, that you can stretch out your hearts to believe them this morning, that though the wrong seem off so strong, God is the ruler and the That's hope, and it's powerful. And so if you live in that hope, then you can go in the power of the Spirit to be a blessing as God blesses you, which is the promise of these words. And so receive this benediction and go uh, and spread hope like seeds. Know that you're planted in the places that God has sent you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace. God bless.